Hey everyone, this is AJ Woodhams, host of the War Books podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Uh, today I'm so excited to have on author Tom Dunkel. Uh, Tom's talking about his new book, uh, White Knights and the Black Orchestra, uh, the Extraordinary Story of the Germans Who Resisted Hitler. I love this book so much. Uh, this is going to be such a, a great conversation. Tom, how are you today? I'm doing well, AJ. And again, I promise I didn't, I, I apologize for not wearing my tuxedo today, but uh, we'll have to make it work. No, 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 no. You look great. You look great. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Tom is a Washington, D.C.-based journalist and author a former staff features writer at the Baltimore Sun and a longtime freelancer for publications like the Washington Post magazine and the New York Times magazine. Um, his new book uh, was about the uh, the resistance to Hitler within the German government um, during World War II. And Tom, I, I thought it was really, uh, really fascinating. I learned so much. Um, Maybe just to get started here, so your book starts in the early 1930s. Um, can you give the audience some context? Uh, what was going on inside Germany? Um, what was going on in the world? Um, what was the, the, the political landscape that the characters in, in your book were navigating? Yeah, it's interesting. Originally, I had, uh, at the proposal stage, I was going to begin the book in 1939. And... Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's one of the central characters in the book, uh, spends time in the United States in in early in the in the fall of 1930. He goes to Union Theological Seminary in New York City to study, and then leaves and comes back uh, in uh, spring of 1930, summer 1939. He he manages to to get a teaching fellowship at. Union Theological Seminary, right as things are really heating up and it looks like war is about to break out on, in, in Europe. And so I was going to begin it there, but I found I was flashing back so much to the early years that I, I decided I just have to basically I'm going to move the book back to 1930. In the early years, people are thinking, well, you know, Hitler will modify once he gets to power. You know, this is kind of a show uh, when but when you're really faced with the responsibility of leading a country, a lot of his rhetoric is going to tone down and, and, and we'll be fine. Um, as you know, that turned out not to be the case and, and, a, and a terrible misjudgment of character and, and the political backdrop. Uh, but as this unwinds from when he's chancellor in the early 30s to as we get deeper into the Nazi period and eventually into the wartime, um, you, I gained an appreciation as I was researching this for, for the context of their moral decisions and the moral dilemmas that the conspirators within the, within the, within the government were faced with. And the image that, that kept popping into my mind was, was that these people were sort of trapped in a box canyon where they were looking for, they, they wanted to do the right thing. They had a moral compulsion to do the right thing and could not really allow themselves not to do the right thing. But the question becomes, well, what exactly can you do and, and what impact, what ripple effect impact will it have? Number one, on the country, there was a thought, okay, if we, if we depose of Hitler one way or another, or are we going to start a civil war in Germany? And then there's also the more personal question that in the, in the Nazi years, they had that concept of collective guilt. So if I commit a crime, I'm not only <laughs> held responsible for that, but my extended family is as well. So if you become part of a plot to overthrow the government, you're not only risking your own life, you're risking the life of your own, your whole family. And what is your moral responsibility at that point to, okay, I can risk, risk my life. Do I have a right to risk my wife's life and my children's life and my parents' life? It's, it's these terrible choices that the people were trying to make and how they were in a way kind of fumbling in the dark to find both a, a way to satisfy their conscience and also a way to, to try to get their country out of this 
you know, horrific dilemma they were in. Uh, yeah. Now, the book is about the Germans who resisted Hitler, uh, but it focuses mostly on two people, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and, uh, am I saying this right? Um, Hans von Dunanyi? That's close enough. Dunanyi, yeah. Okay, von Dunanyi. Um, start with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, what kind of person was he? What was he like? Um, why was he especially suited um, for, uh, for this particular role uh, inside government resisting Hitler? Bonhoeffer was one of those, uh, almost a, I guess you could describe him as, as an intellectual prodigy in a way. Um, as I recall, by the time he was uh, nine or 10 years old, he had decided he wanted to become you know, a pastor, which uh, his siblings, some of his siblings found rather amusing uh, and, and uh, not a proper occupation for uh, an upper class uh, German family. Uh, but he was speaking, I've got three or four languages by the time he was 14 or 15. And then by the time he was, uh, as I recall, by the time he was 20, he had a, his bachelor's degree, a master's degree. And I think he had finished most of his doctoral work, if not all of it by then. And actually what brings him, uh, part of what brings him to the United States in 1931 is that he was, he had done all of this and he even had done a, uh, an assistant pastorship in Barcelona, but he was still too young to be ordained in Germany. It had to be either, it was 24 or 25 years old. So he essentially had some time on his hands. So he decides to come to Union Theological Seminary in New York City, which has a tradition of, of kind of a progressive activist uh, approach to the ministry. And he gets a fellowship there for, you know, the fall of, 30 into the summer of 31. Uh, but he was somewhat intimidating to people because he was so smart and extremely well-read and a voracious reader as well, and, and clearly a man of faith. And Bonhoeffer, when he was in America, uh, he was, I thought this was really interesting, uh, you write that he was, he was really involved in the African-American community. Is that right? Yeah. Even to the point of, uh, he would, uh, uh, Abyssinian Baptist Church was the, the big black church in Harlem. And uh, Adam Clayton Powell Sr. was the pastor at, at that time. And so you had this young, you know, flaxen-haired <laughs> uh, German exchange uh, student, rather, uh, coming over to, to the States. And he... Um, Abyssinian Baptist Church was, was not the nearest church that he, he could have gone to. Uh, but he was drawn, to, uh, partly there was a black student at uh, Union Theological Seminary that said, hey, go check this church out. And he checked it out and enjoyed it to the extent that he was actually um, invited by Pastor Powell to, to join in the ministry where he was doing home visits with families. And uh, even in, in culturally in, in, in Harlem, Bonhoeffer was a, uh, was a piano player and again, quite good. You know, at eight or 10 years old, he's playing Mozart, you know, on the sonatas on the, on the piano. But he started hanging out, interestingly enough, in the, in the jazz club uh, in, in up, uptown Manhattan. Uh, but he was immersing himself he made a deliberate effort to immerse himself into American culture, much to his credit. And he was even, uh, he was even taking road trips on Christmas breaks and spring breaks and such. And he was keenly aware <laughs> of the, of the racial divide in the United States at that time. And not, Attuned to it as a as a as a as a foreigner coming to the states, not yet knowing that what was going to happen over in Germany, where you where you have an acute ethnic divide with particularly with Jews and Germans in his own country, but it was sort of a precursor of what he was going to deal with and see over there. But he was talking about he he could not understand 
the level of discrimination in the states and how how people could uh you know relate to a uh you know to a duke ellington as a musician but the notion of duke ellington you know eating the same restaurant with you would just be you know more than white people in this in the states could handle so he was aware of that sort of uh that ethnic tension and and stew that he has sort of walked into but he was he's an interesting guy and and and, and bonhoeffer of course has has come to be quite widely read and uh he's but he was conservative in, in a lot of ways and you know when he would talk about um for example, he thought, well, a husband and wife should have the same opinion about things. He couldn't quite handle because <laughs> as he, as his life evolves, he gets engaged during the war and is, and is contemplating marriage. But, uh, and he said also that, that a lot of times he was aware that he would in, intimidate people with his, with his intellect. And he would, he told his, his good friend, Eberhard Betke, that in a way, he was almost a little bit jealous of Betke. He said, you know, you're very easygoing and people relate to you where, where people seem to, I seem to come off as very, somewhat stern with other people. But he was, he was a charismatic guy. There's no, no question about it. And deeply, deeply committed to his faith. And of course, his faith would bring him into, into conflict with the political establishment. And he was, and his, um, Danyani was his brother-in-law. And others were faced with that dilemma. And Donyani being a, a Christian as well. Where is, you know, how how active should you be as a Christian? And when they get to the point where they're thinking of assassinating Hitler, then there's a lot of, of there's a religious and ethical dimension to that as well. You know, it, it, it's interesting. There was a, um, his, his brother Klaus uh, also got active in the resistance more on, a little bit more on the uh, civilian, and he was uh, an attorney at Lufthansa uh, Airlines. But he, his wife, Emmy, after the war, um, she was talking about how she she wrestled with the notion of what the whole family went through, because, you know, Bonhoeffer, uh, without without doing spoiler alerts here. I mean, there was a number of friends and family who, who wound up getting killed. Uh, and Emmy Bonhoeffer admits that after the war, where she's thinking, you know, this was such a blood soaked period of time, you know, was it worth resisting? But then she went on to say that, and there was a quote from her in a letter where she goes, um, you know, people think that the resistance, and I'm closely paraphrasing here, people think that the resistance was a matter of choice or free will, but there really was no choice. I mean, you, they knew the risk, but they could not let themselves be passive. Um, so there was that feeling that we just, you have no choice. So the question becomes, well, then, the next step of that is, well, what exactly do we do? And that's, that's what a lot of the conspirators were wrestling with throughout, throughout the war. And particularly as it got to the point where it looked like what we have to do is, is frankly kill him, meaning Hitler. Uh, yeah, the moral call to action was really fascinating. Uh, let's talk about Hans von Dunanyi. Um What kind of person was he? Uh, why was he especially suited for, um, for this role? Yeah, Hans Danyani is, uh, Bonhoeffer is, I think, fair to say, well-known, you know, here in the States, certainly in Germany. And he's he's one of the more well-known resistors and activists during World War II. His brother-in-law, Hans Danyani, gets very short shrift, and he's not, he's not as well-known as I think he should be. Uh, he was a, um, an attorney... Um, and an early, and again, very, uh, Bonhoeffer being precocious as a, uh, as a theologian and an intellect, uh, Donyani was quite, people were quite impressed by his intellect and by his capabilities as an attorney. And he rose, he started off in, uh, oh, I can't, it was, um, one of the ministries of commerce or economics and, but quickly, 
got a job with was brought into the ministry of uh, of justice at a, I think he was 25 at the time which is the age when he marries uh, Dietrich's sister uh, Christine and again a person of he he was uh, people who interacted with him during the war th- felt that he could be kind of um, I don't want to say prudish but 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 kind of uh, he, he was Bonhoeffer. I think had a little bit more of a of a of a personal instant personal charisma with people. Uh, Danyani was 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 I think fair to say very businesslike, and um, he was determined from as soon as, he met her Hitler early on, which is thirty three or thirty four. He's in a meeting with Hitler, and he comes back from that meeting and tells his wife, "You know, this guy's crazy. He's mad." And he begins um, in 34, starting to keep what is like one could think is a running diary, but it was really kind of a dossier on the on the Nazi movement and regime, specifically um, not just atrocities, but even even any kind of thing within the government that that smelled wrong to him. And in the back of his mind, it was that at some point there's going to be an accounting one way or another, and that this would be, this would be, he's thinking as an attorney here, valuable evidence to document what was going on here. And even doing that, and even when he started doing it early on, was at some risk to his life. In fact, he took great precautions where he was typing his notes I think, as I recall, it was a dozen different typewriters where he, that he was using because he didn't want to be traced in any way. And a couple of people knew what he was doing, including Hans Gertner, who was the minister of, of justice, who, who let him uh, proceed on his way with that. But he became sort of a, he actually called it a chronicle, but he was, he was chronicling, he felt this compelling need to chronicle the, the, the Nazi regime. And then he becomes increasingly activist and he reaches a, and he's known for that within some circles of the government. And another character that enters the narrative um, is Wilhelm Canaris, who was the head of the Abwehr, which was the overseas military intelligence where you, we could sort of think of that as a, analogous perhaps to the CIA for for people not familiar with that there. But Canaris was a, a, a career military man and an interesting, again, when you speak about divided loyalties and complexities of, of, of enduring the Nazi regime, Canaris was the, the highest up of, of a number of these conspirators and, and he was using the Avar as, as a way to shelter people particularly at Avar headquarters. And Avar, there was, as you get deeper into the war, I think there's 10,000, you know, people working for the Avar. But within headquarters, he has a, essentially a cell of about 40 or 50 anti-Hitler conspirators that he is giving free reign and shelter to. And he brings Donyani into the Abwehr uh, right after the invasion of Poland in September 39, because by then Donyani had had a reputation uh, with, again, within these circles, uh, within the government of both being a man of, of high character and integrity, but also being someone who, who was drawn to being an activist and we got to do, we have to do something about Hitler's. So within government, how many people would you say were, were actually in uh, the black orchestra, which is, is this group of, of resistors within government that you write about? You're not going to get a firm number on something like that because number one, it, it was, it was too dangerous. And not like you could have a, a meeting of all the black orchestra people, let's get together and talk about killing Hitler. Um, it would depend on what level you're speaking of. In other words, within, uh, say within the Abwehr, that, that core group, uh, and again, people are, are active on, on different levels, but within, in the Abwehr, there's estimated to be about 40 people who know what's going on and, and who are involved in conspiring. 
they of course are in touch with people within within the military, particularly generals out in the field, because one one of the concerns they had was, okay, if we if we kill Hitler, it's not going to do much good if we don't have a, a sort of a core group of in the military that's going to support us because. Uh, you know, if you kill them and they decide to just continue with with business as usual with the Nazi government, what have we really accomplished? So they they felt that they had to get that 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 uh, indefinable but sort of gut feeling of, of enough high level people in the military to support this, and um, that it, it, it was quite interesting within the German military. Um, they were required. Um, and I think this is, and I can't remember exactly here, it's either in 33 or 34. When you were in the military, you take an oath to your country. Well, that changed when Hitler became chancellor and, it, and it, in 33 or 34, uh, you start taking the oath to Hitler, to the Fuhrer. And among the officer corps, you know, you, 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 you take a loyalty oath and they take it seriously. But there was also an enormous sense of, of professionalism and loyalty to your fellow um, officers, and to the point where they would they would be able to discuss quite openly among themselves, and and again with people on the fence or some people that weren't even in favor of the conspiracy, quite openly talk about assassinating Hitler. And there was a number of those officers and, and generals and majors and colonels that could have betrayed the conspirators, but but did not do that. I mean, there, there was a, a almost an overriding sense of loyalty to your to your fellow officers. So to put a number, it certainly was in the it, it was in the several hundreds as um, this conspiracy expands, and then there's there's two. Uh, Coup attempts in thirty-eight and thirty-nine, in which you know you have a number of they, you know, the okay, we shoot Hitler, but then we got to take control of the government after that, and that the there were officers who were part of yeah, we're going to take our men out in the field, we'll take control of the streets of Berlin, we'll do that. So people were cooperating. So certainly within the several of several hundreds uh, had a notion and were were active in it, and then beyond that, there's all sorts, you know, there's you know, people, you know, part-time players in it. But I, I would say that in terms of the Black Orchestra, think of it as, as 40 or 50 in that in that core group, a group of several hundred that extended to officers who were were complicit in cooperating. And then beyond that, you, you know, you had more people who were sympathetic and might have joined the conspiracy if, you know, when you get to um, the situation in July of... of 44 with the uh the valkyrie bombing i've noticed a, a lot of the resistors that you write about were in kind of uh they were in more of an elite class um there were aristocrats um upper class people uh people with privileged backgrounds i mean that was uh yeah i mean that's that's essentially it's certainly in the officer officer corps and in the, in the diplomatic corps um why do you think that was well, that's largely the way a lot of societies work. Is that your elites tend tend to run things? So, and particularly in the in you know the older, uh, older European countries, you have your established. It, same thing was going on in in Great in Britain. I mean, you have your established, you, you know, your your upper class, uh, both in business and politics, and in the military, that's not unusual, uh, and particularly in. Uh, in those situations, it was interesting because, uh, partly because of, of of how old the countries are, uh, you have those inter interlocking family trees. I mean, it, it was quite interesting how many how many members of the upper class in Germany were were related to each other. Everybody seems to be a cousin or a second cousin, uh, and uh, that that was just the way. That was just the way the culture and the society functioned then. But it was particularly if, if you're speaking within that upper level, upper echelon of the government, it's, it's going to be mostly uh, 
of the upper class. And, and, and in fact, Diani, uh, Danyani makes a comment um, as we're getting into the later, darker, final days of the war. Um, he he is, is befriended by a, a medical doctor, one of the police doctors. Um, and, and they start talking politics and, and he mentions what by that, and again, uh, spoiler alert territory here, but uh, he is in prison at one point. He's talking about the resistor he meet, the resistors he meets on a lower level, meaning not people necessarily from the upper class and in prison and, and how impressed he was with those people. And he expresses his dissatisfaction with the upper class in Germany and, and the officer class in Germany that they could have and should have done more. And if they had, and particularly if they'd done it early on, early on, then, uh, then the Nazis would not have spun out of control. And in other words, the time to stop Hitler was early and not, not enough people stood up at the right time to do it. People who had, who were in a position of authority and responsibility that could have done something. Let's talk about the title of your book, um, White Knights in the Black Orchestra. Uh, so I've heard of the Red Orchestra before. I think maybe a lot of other people have, which is the nickname that the Nazis gave to uh, a famous group of resistors in Germany. Um, but I had never heard of the Black Orchestra until I, I read your book. Um, talk a little bit, uh, a little bit about that. Why is why why is it called the Black Orchestra? Yeah, there's a there's a two track um, explanation of the, of the title, and as you one gets deeper in the book, it the meaning becomes clear. Uh, the Black Orchestra was in essence a slang term. It's believed to have, have uh, started with the Gestapo, and again, it preceded the Black Orchestra. There was the group, the Red Orchestra, and, and kind of the the linguistic background of this is that if you had a resistance group. They would often have a radio, you know, to communicate. And in those days, you were communicating by radio with 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 a uh, by Morse code, tapping out Morse code messages, which uh, is analogous to somebody playing a piano. That's that's kind of the the etymology behind the word. And okay, the radio operator was the piano player. Then uh, and other people are going to be part of the orchestra. So hence, you know, that description of a resistance group. And the Red Orchestra was a, was a group of, of civilian resistors. And there was a couple of, they were involved with a couple of different clusters, smaller group of people. Um, and they had, a number of them had sympathies with Russia and not all of them, but in terms of the slang terminology that became uh, adopted within the Gestapo, that group became known as the Red Orchestra. And they were, uh, as I recall at the top of my head, they were arrested, I think, in the fall of 42. They finally got discovered and arrested and, and go on trial. Uh, the Black Orchestra, the, a group within the government, uh, Gestapo and people in the military become aware of them after that. And it was just an evolution of the term. I've got, and the Black Orchestra, I guess, being... Uh, more sinful to be within the government and, and resisting, but that they adopted that slang expression for the black orchestra. So the red orchestra never actually, they never called themselves that. It's a name that the Gestapo gave them. That's, that's where they believe the evolution of the term came from within the Gestapo, just their shorthand way of referring to these people. Yeah. And the black orchestra was the same thing. They never actually called themselves the black orchestra. No, no, they no. That was a Gestapo term as well, and a sort of a slang term that was thrown around as they're doing their investigations. But no, they didn't. They didn't refer to themselves as as anything. Uh, they didn't have a name for themselves. So, what were some of the activities that the Black Orchestra was doing? What were some of the different ways that that they were organizing and and resisting Hitler? Yeah, well, there was there was um, well, for example. Um, in 1938, uh, you know, Hitler, uh, you know, he tells his, as I recall, it was in November in 37, that he actually tells, he has a meeting with the, uh, with his 
top tier generals. And, and that's where he uses that expression that uh, every generation needs needs a war. And I'm going to I'm going to see that our generation has this war where he is in his own head is is making plans to uh, expand beyond the borders of Germany. And they the first excursion is into Austria. And then, uh, and that's the Anschluss is in uh, March 38, I think. Um, that was his, that was the first domino to kind of fall and it felt pretty peacefully. Uh, next up, he had his eye on Czechoslovakia and the, the Sudetenland area of Czechoslovakia, which was, had a German population. And he, Hitler's using that as kind of a wedge issue that, Oh, the Germans are, are, are being mistreated in, in the Sudetenland. We have to go in there and, and, and save them and blah, blah, blah. Um, at that point, uh, they actually begin to, to talk about an outright uh, coup attempt of some. And, and one of the, again, there's a, there's a couple of tracks they're pursuing here. One of which is, which perhaps sounds naive or, or overly optimistic was that they were going to put Hitler under arrest and, and put him on trial and try to dispose of him without violence. And parenthetically, there, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's father was a, was a psychologist and um, psychiatrist. They were going to have Bonhoeffer's, Bonhoeffer's father, uh, again, through contacts with his conspirators and with Dunyani, who's his son-in-law, uh, Bonhoeffer's father was going to be the person who was going to do the medical evaluation on Hitler and declare him insane when they when they put him on trial. So that um, conspiracy is rolling to the point where they have it organized and they have uh, managed to um, collect munitions. They have a plan for for little safe houses in, in, in Berlin. And um, Hitler makes a, there was a, a couple of the top tier generals who were on the, on the fence about cooperating with the conspiracy with the generals who would have the authority to actually call troops to arms uh, against the government. Um, they get cold feet. Hitler, Hitler makes a comment and, and they get the sense that maybe Hitler has this, gotten a sense that there's a coup in motion and they call it off and they talk about burning all the files. So that's in fall 38. So at first the plan was um, just to arrest Hitler and put him in jail, not actually kill him. That was the hope. Although um, as a conspiracy within the conspiracy, um, Hans Oster was was. It's fair to say at that point, kind of the hub of the wheel in terms of actually planning and and and, and being a conduit between military people and people within the Advar. He was he was sort of the coordinator of this. He has a major Heinz who was in charge. He was going to be in charge of the assault unit that was going to storm the uh, chancellery and take Hitler into custody. Privately, <laughs> after a meeting, Oster and um, Major Heinz, Friedrich Heinz, I believe is his first name. Uh, they get together between themselves and, and, and they say, listen, no matter what Hitler does, whether he cooperates or not, shoot him. Uh, so that, but that was not authorized uh, by the entire conspiracy at that point. There was, uh, again, people of conscience here. Uh, uh, General Ludwig Beck was another high up general who is involved with the with the resistance and with the coup and an old time classic honorable prussian military man um he was uncomfortable just with the with the notion of assassination just morally uncomfortable with it, assassinating the head of the government and had certainly had his articulated his reasons for that uh so there was that wrestling match that was kind of going on at what point and later on Beck consents that this is really the only way out of this. But at that point in 38, the hope was theoretically to take Hitler into custody 
or, you know, arrest him, put him on trial, get him declared mentally incompetent or whatever. And if the military, enough people in the military went along with it, they could ease him out of, of the chancellorship that way. Uh, As the war progresses, though, uh, the goal is always assassination. Just kill Hitler uh, because arresting him is, is out of the question by this point. That becomes more, yeah, yeah. By the time they get to 39, they're, you know, after the invasion of Poland, the, the conspiracy heats up again. And they try, there's, again, that thought of a coup at that point. Um, but the notion is that it's probably, probably going to have to be an assassination attempt. And then that, um, that fails when they actually, when, with the actual invasion of Poland, because at that point, um, you know, uh, there are, Britain declares war and, and um, Germany is now at war it's difficult, if not impossible, to get the officer corps to revolt when the country's at war, you know, all out war. I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of self-preservation of the, of the fatherland at that point. Tell us about the assassination attempts, because I thought those were really interesting. What were some of the ways that um, the people in this group, what were some of the ways that they tried to kill Hitler? For example, in March 39, they, they came very close uh, to killing Hitler with a bomb that was put on his airplane. And they, and they did that with, again, organized, um, out of the advert, uh, Canaris signing off on this and in con- consultation with some officers on the Russian front. And the way it evolved is they had a plan where, um, uh, Germany goes into Russia in, uh, June of 41 and Hitler, originally thought foolishly that that was going to go a lot, a lot quicker than it did. And then eventually he winds up getting bogged down in, in winter time there. Anyhow, by 43, there's the things are, they're still fighting on the Russian front and Hitler has a, uh, has a headquarters in on close to the Russian front. And, uh, they sort of maneuver him in, into visiting what was called Army Group Center, which is one of the uh, headquarters on the front, which is in Smolensk. And they cons- kind of conspire through uh, military officers who know somebody on Hitler's staff to get Hitler to, to stop at, at Army Group Center and kind of do a, 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 a kind of a... Uh, PR visit to, to the troops and the, to the generals in the field there. And at that point, um, he's traveling by plane and um, unbeknownst to one of uh, the officers accompanying on a plane did not know what this package contained, but one of the conspirators tells him that, oh, I lost a bet with someone bet one of the generals back in Berlin, I owe him a couple of bottles of Cointreau. Can you put this on the plane and, and and take it. And of course it was not Quantro in that package. It, it was plastic explosive and they get it on board and it's in the storage compartment. And where the uh, attempt failed was that the plastic explosive, uh, however, wherever it was, I guess it was in the hold on the plane. It was just too cold that basically the plastic explosive, the mechanism triggered, basically the plastic explosive froze up. Uh, which created the uh, awful dilemma and, and the heart, some hearts were pounding in Smolensk and in Berlin because they had to go retrieve this package before it ever got to that general who was going to get it, who would thereupon open it up and find a bomb inside and not two bottles of Cointreau. And so... Um, I can imagine setting all this up and then getting the phone call that not only did the plan not work, not only did you not kill Hitler... But then realizing you've actually got to go back and retrieve the bomb. Lieutenant Fabian Schlabrendorf was uh, the person who got on a uh, on a mail plane the next day from Smolensk from the front, goes to Berlin. And then, uh, as I recall, at that point, the package might have been in, in Wolfslayer, which is Hitler's little military headquarters outside. Um, he had to 
he calls ahead and says, oh, listen, I made a mistake. I, I, I gave the guy the wrong package. Um, and uh, manages to get there in time and, and retrieve the bomb. And they uh, actually take the explosive and they try to, to, in essence, recycle it a week later. They, they got another uh, general, uh, Gerstorf, who volunteered to do a suicide bombing. And this, again, is a week or 10 days later. Hitler was due to uh, do a review of, of armaments captured that were on display at the armory in Berlin. And uh, Gerstorf, Avvar was involved in, in kind of the planning of this display. And so they, they could contrive a situation where, where Gerstorf had a reason to be there and was going to greet Hitler and walk him through the exhibit and this and that. So he takes uh, the plastic explosives with him. And the one, the, the one glitch they had was uh, Gerstoff wanted a fuse that he could trigger instantaneously. And they, they could not get a fuse like that quickly enough. And, and I believe that fuse that he wound up using had a 10 minute timer on it. And so he greets Hitler as he walks into the armory and he triggers his he's, he's Hitler's with a cluster of people and Gerstoff is trying to get close to him and walk with him and he triggers his bomb and then Hitler whether you know I doubt he was tipped off or whether he was running behind schedule or whether he had kind of a sixth sense at times of whether he was in any danger but he was due to as I recall spend a half hour in this exhibit and winds up speeding through in about two or three minutes. And so Gerstorf is kind of hustling after him, trying to get close enough. Uh, and Hitler's gone, and he he had a wreath a wreath laying ceremony at the armory out in the out in the quadrangle area there. So he he's outside, and Gerstorf is no longer close to him. So Gerstorf has to run off and go to the go to a men's room and dismantle the bomb. So that was another attempt. Uh, there was another one where, um, another suicide bomb attempt where a captain had, uh, there was, uh, Hitler was very hands-on in terms of, he wanted to see um, new armaments or, or, or new uh, equipment. He liked to personally see this before he would sign off on a lot of it. And they had designed some, uh, as I recall, it was winter warfare uh, backpacks and overcoats, a, a new generation of this. And there was, there was actually a, a, if you want to call it a fashion show, but a couple of the officers were going to parade around in this new gear for him. And there was a captain again, who volunteered to uh, do a suicide bombing. Uh, well, and he was picked to be, you know, the model as it were to display these, this new winter warfare equipment. And um, the first attempt got Hitler's schedule was notoriously fluid for security reasons. So they, they had one uh, set up for this that got canceled at the last minute. They came back and they were going to do it again. And I think this is in December of 43 at this point. But what happened is that there was the allies at this point, there's a lot of bombing going on and, and allies are doing a lot of bombing of Germany and particularly Berlin. And they wound up bombing the, uh, not that it was targeted, but they bombed the supply train that, that, that contained the, this, this shipment of new military clothing and, and equipment that Hitler was going to take a look at. So they canceled that, uh, that unveiling for him. So that attempt missed. And then, uh, of course, later on there's the, July 44, there's the, the Valkyrie bombing attempt with uh, Klaus von Stauffenberg that's memorialized by Tom Cruise in the movie that a lot of people are familiar with. And that's the one that came that came the closest to uh, to actually killing Hitler. Um, and there was other now I think, but, you know, again, there was another uh, the bombing attempt, uh, which was not part of the conspiracy per se, which was the, uh, it was, if you want, for want of a better word, a rogue conspirator, which is a gentleman by the name of George Elser, 
uh, did a bombing attempt on Hitler in November of uh, November 38, as I recall, at, in Munich, in, in, the, in the beer hall in Munich. And that bomb went off as well. I mean, that he killed, a, well, my recollection, he killed about a dozen people that day. But Hitler, he left early and went back to Berlin. And he had had, again, this was, this was a meticulously planned, this guy planned this attempt for about a year where he actually had moved to Munich and would go have dinner in this beer hall almost every night and he, it's, you know, it sounds incredible, but he, he was actually hiding in the beer hall at night uh, after it closed. And he was meticulously carving out, a, it was a, a column with a, you know, wooden facade panels around it. So he, he broke into this column and he was carving out, uh, chipping away, creating a space big enough for a bomb to, to be in there. But he was planning this for a year and actually planned it pretty meticulously. And it actually, the bomb went off, but it was just, you know, maybe a half hour of timing difference, uh, 20 minutes and uh, history would have been different. But So the famous assassination attempt, um, the, the movie Valkyrie with Tom Cruise was, was made about the July 20th plot. Uh, what were Bonhoeffer and... Uh, what, what was their involvement in the July 20th plot? At that point, they don't have any involvement there. You know, the when people, um, Valkyrie being the most well-known plot, I think, in part because, at least in the States here, in part because of the, of the Tom Cruise movie. But you have to look at that plot as a continuum of events that were you know, began again from, from Daniani's perspective, from the, he was an active conspirator starting in about 1934. He and uh, Bonhoeffer and a few others get arrested in April of 43. Um, Oster gets arrested a little bit. Oster is not Oster at that point is is thrown out of the military. He's not arrested. He's essentially goes into a, a quasi house arrest situation and moves out of Berlin. And Oster was, was was again considered kind of the the glue at the center, the sort of the hub at the center of the wheel at that point. Um, so there's some a period of, of not floundering, but they're wondering, okay, what's the next, what, what is the next phase of this? And in the summer of 43, um, a couple of the conspirators who are left, uh, um, and there's a civilian, uh, a couple of civilians and, and Beck, they, they, they are actually introduced by a, a doctor friend of, of, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's father, who makes an introduction between this young uh, lieutenant colonel, uh, Klaus von Stauffenberg, and some members of the conspiracy. And, if, and he eventually meets Beck and Karl Gordler, who's, who's the, one of the civilian leaders of the, of the military. And they both get a sense that um, von Stauffenberg was a, was a very charismatic guy. And, the, and they get a sense that, okay, this is our man who can who can replace Oster as, as sort of a, of a hub of this wheel, if you were. And the conspiracy at that point essentially moves out of Abwehr, where Oster was based, and over to Army uh, Group Headquarters, where, where Stauffenberg uh, is based. And Stauffenberg becomes uh, the key person in, in in the sense, not only in, in planning is because he is in a position of getting close to Hitler. He gets promoted to a position on the army uh, command staff that would put him in not regular, but occasional contact with Hitler. And he's also motivated to uh, personally motivated to the extent where he's willing to do a suicide bomb. And he tries a couple of, they, there was a couple of attempts before Valkyrie where, where they called it off. Uh, one was because uh, Stauffenberg had a bomb in a, 
and again, they're back at these plastic explosive bombs. He has a bomb in his briefcase at one particular meeting, but he didn't want to explode that bomb because he wanted some more members of the German high command to be in that meeting. And as I recall, um, uh, Goering was not there. And I think maybe he was hoping Himmler would be there, but not enough. Hitler was there, but not enough of his, his key people that he, he didn't want to do that bomb attempt. Then he has one in uh, early July of, of 44, where uh, Hitler leaves, and it's at the Wolfslayer headquarters, his military headquarters. Hitler happens to leave, again, with his schedule being somewhat unpredictable. Von Stauffenberg is there. He has a bomb in the briefcase. Hitler leaves the meeting earlier than he was expecting. Then a week or so later is the July 20th attempt where that's the one where it actually comes to fruition. And they had, um, there was other conspirators on site. Uh, as I recall, General Phil Giebel was a, a in charge of communications. He was going to get the word out when the bomb goes off on site. He's going to, he's going to phone back to Berlin and say, okay, we got it. They had plans for, certain generals to call up some troops, take over the streets of Berlin and essentially go into a, a lockdown situation at, at Army High Command and some things. Uh, and they were aware, they were in, even though they were in prison at this time, they were still, uh, in fact, one of their methods of communication was via books. They would have coded messages. You were allowed to get, uh, I think about once a week, if you get a food package and, and reading material. So they were communicating uh, through code, little underlines. They would really faint underlines. They would put like on every 10th page in a book, they would underline one consonant or vowel. And you'd have to go through a whole book to get figure out what the message was. But they were communicating in large part through Hans Vandiani's wife, who was Dietrich Bonhoeffer's sister. Christine, who was still in touch with some of the members of the conspirators who had not yet been arrested. At that point, Oster had not yet been arrested. Um, Canaris had sort of stepped back a little bit, but they were they were aware that the July uh, ex, uh, conspiracy bombing was in motion. They were aware that Stauffenberg had joined the conspiracy. So they knew what was going on. In fact, um, I think it was about two weeks before the bombing. Uh, I don't know how he described their relationship. It was Bonhoeffer's mother's cousin uh, was uh, General Paul Hayes, was it, who was essentially the commandant of Berlin uh, and also had authority for the prisons. Um, about it was two or three weeks before the uh July 20 bombing, he actually comes to see Bonhoeffer in prison. Bonhoeffer is being held at that point in Tegel prison in, in Berlin and spends about five hours there and actually brings, I think it was either four or five bottles of sparkling wine he brought with him. And at this point, um, he was an active member. Uh, you know, he was a key member of the conspiracy at that point, because again, he was going to, he was going to call up some of his men to, to take control of some of the streets of Berlin. And Hayes knows, Bonhoeffer doesn't know the exact day that the bombing is coming, but he knows this is in motion and something's happening uh, imminently. When his uncle, if you will, come, he called him Uncle Paul. When Uncle, uncle Paul comes to see him in prison and spends five hours with him, he knows something is happening very quickly. So Bonhoeffer and von Dananyi, what lands them in prison isn't actually, um, they didn't get caught plotting uh, to try and kill Hitler. What actually lands them in, in prison is financial crimes, right? Yes, yeah, so essentially uh, they were they were caught funneling money within Abor. And, and this, when you speak to uh, Hans Dayani as a person and his sense of conscience, uh, this is a perfect example, and it, and it wind up, you could argue, in essence, unraveling the, the conspiracy for them. They had, uh, 
developed a in um, when it when the deportations start. And forgive me for some of my trying to remember off the top of my head. I believe the first deportation of Jews out of Berlin. Uh, I'm trying to remember if it's October forty-one or forty-two, but um, I believe it's forty-one at that point when they first start. Uh, Bonhoeffer becomes there's a, there's a, a woman who works the um, Bonhoeffer was active in in what became a splinter movement within the Lutheran Church called called the Confessing Church, and these these were if you want for want of a better word progressive. Um, Lutherans who who wanted no part of the Nazi regime and in their own way were doing, if you want to call it conspiratorial activities. But there was a secretary there, who was of as a lot of people in in Germany had become unsafe to be a practicing Jew, but you were still of Jewish heritage, and you were still still considered a Jew in the eyes of government, and, and therefore uh, a target for deportation. So Bonhoeffer gets concerned that that this woman Charlotte Friedenthal maybe sent to one of the camps and he wants to do, you know, what can, what can we do to try to help her? So he talks to Danyani. Danyani was in touch with a couple of other uh, Jews in Berlin who had approached him back in 36 because they were losing their law licenses and he couldn't do much for them other than, than delay that a little bit. They came to see him around that same time. And it turns out their families are on a deportation list. So they have, develop a plan, uh, which originally was seven people, and it was called Operation 7, and it eventually grew to 14 people, 14 Jews that they're going to get out of the country. And the way they do it, with Canaris's approval, and it sounds um, almost too good to be true, but Canaris winds up convincing Heinrich Himmler and the SS to sign off on this plan, where they're going to send some Jews abroad to be, to be spies for the German government, because who's going to ever expect these people who've been expelled from Germany that would actually be spying for us? So they they get them out to, to Basel. Uh, again, there's 14 of them. And what they did is they diverted money from Avar operation funds. Hans Danyani felt that for these people to leave the country, they would have to leave everything behind, all their property, all their possessions. And he said, we can't just dump these people in another country without giving them a, a money stake. So the the worked out to be about a, what would be the equivalent of about 100,000 US dollars. They diverted that into a, into a secret pot of money to essentially be a grub stake, if you will, for these families that they were they were relocating to Switzerland. And there were some people in the accounting department of, of the Abwehr who were not part of this conspiracy, who started to get suspicious about that. And then coincidentally, there was a, a, a guy in the Abwehr based in Munich who was not a part of this conspiracy, but he was doing some some uh, illegal activity on the black market, and he got discovered, and gets arrested, and he gets put under questioning and tortured. And he knew he was not a real active member of the conspiracy. He was helping. You know, he may have had some help in terms of this uh, signing off on some of this money they were diverting. But he wound he wound up when he was getting tortured, he, he breaks. Uh, so that sets into motion the arrests of uh, Bonhoeffer, Donyani, and another conspirator by the name of Joseph Mueller are all arrested on the same day in April of, of 1943. But that is when the heat starts to be turned up on the Abwehr, where it becomes the German government gets more suspicious that there are people within the Abwehr that are actually active in, in conspiracies. And uh, even uh, Canaris, uh, as clever as he was in covering his tracks, he becomes an object of suspicion within the government at that point. And it's not until uh, a bit later that he's actually uh, discovered, though. But um, that was sort of the beginning of the un unwinding and uh, 
April of 43 when those guys get arrested. So why is this story important? I think it's important on a, on a couple of levels. I think on the one level, again, it's, it's um, just on the um, issue of, of a number of, a number of these people are, are at least here in the, and I was writing for a general interest audience and particularly a general interest American audience that I don't think is fair to say is aware of what was going on in, that as much was going on inside the government as that time. And also specific people who were really active. And, and again, Hans Dayani is a, is a person who is not well known before. And there were some other people, uh, um, Helmuth Moltke, we didn't get a chance to mention. He's another attorney in Abwehr who was involved in the conspiracy and a very interesting guy. Um, so that that there was more of an appreciation of what was being done inside the German government. And also, again, the, the notion of putting a lens on this where you get more of an appreciation of just what a difficult position those people were in. And also that, you know, this is not ancient history. If we look at what's going on in, in Europe right now, and frankly, some of what's going on in our country right now, and, and we all know about the resurgence of of fascism around the world. And um, people of conscience <laughs> did not end after, you know, it, it's, not an, it, it's not a concept for history. Uh, acts of conscience take place in real time and all the time, but there are certain pivot points of history where, where people are called upon to make decisions and, and act um, morally more than others. And we are both uh, to some extent in our country, but it's going on in a number of countries around the world right now where, where you know, moral conscience is, uh, this is a time to, uh, where your conscience is tested. And that's where I think looking at people who went through the same thing before uh, and no, again, you're not going to have exact parallels in, in political or social situations, but there are sure <laughs> there's a lot of commonality in what went on in Germany in the 30s and 40s and what's going on in, in, in places around the world today. And uh, how do people respond? What is the right thing to do? And then you ideally with a book like this, you, you want readers to ask the question, you know, what would I have done or where is my line and what would I do? There's a, just very quickly, I mentioned Helmuth Moltke, very interesting guy, but he was again from a, a, a well-known upper-class German family. His great grand uncle had been a hero of the Franco-Prussian war and he had, had a thousand acre land grant. And this was a well-established family and he becomes part of the conspiracy. And there is a point, um, I'm trying to think of, this must have been in 42, because it's after the Russian, after the Germany goes into Russia. And he, his, his specialty is international law. So, and, and particularly he was aghast at some of the violations of, of the Hague Convention and rules of war and civilians being killed. And he's looking at the statistics from the Russian front and he breaks it down, and my, I think this is correct. He, these numbers are coming across his desk, and there's 15,000 Russians being killed a day and 10,000 Germans. And he breaks it down into how many are being killed an hour, how many are being killed by the minute. And he's writing letters to his wife, who is taking care of the family farm in Silesia while uh, Helmuth is spending most of his time in Abwehr in Berlin. He's got a little apartment there. And he writes to her one night, right? And it's after he's looking at, at these numbers. And he says, you know, how can I sit here sipping my tea? And the phrasing is something on the order of, it says, um, and what will I say when people ask, and what did you do at that time? I mean, the, the moral weight that, these guys were carrying and it was on their minds every day, but he was acutely aware of you're in a moment of, of time where action is required and called for. 
And are you going to step up to the moment and take action and do something? Or there was a lot of people who were content to just keep sipping their tea. Uh, he was not one of those people. Thomas has been a really terrific conversation. I've learned so much. Um, I loved your book. I love these stories. Um, particularly, I really enjoyed uh, the stories of courage that you highlighted in your book. Um, you know, I think this is a, a really timely uh, piece here. Um, now, if someone wants to find you, uh, where can they find you? Or do you have social media? Are you online? Oh, they can start at my website, which is uh, tomdunkel.com. I'm on Twitter. I think it's tomdunkel underscore number one. Uh, may also just very quickly make make one uh, commercial, not commercial announcement, but uh, I want to just express my thanks, as, as a number of writers do, to the National Endowment of the Humanities. The NEH gave me a grant for this project, which was hugely helpful, particularly for those of us writers who were writing during the pandemic, which kind of threw all of our research and uh, everything off, off kilter. So um, it's very interesting. The NEH is one of the few, few things in the government that both Republicans and Democrats agree about these days. But uh, I, I, would, I just would like to acknowledge the work that they do for writers and for projects like this. Um, but uh, yeah, but certainly uh, the website is the easiest way to, way to reach me. And I respond to any questions and complaints and criticisms 24-7. So. That's great. That's great. Well, everyone, uh, White Knights and the Black Orchestra, uh, the extraordinary story of the Germans who resisted Hitler. Um, go buy it. Go check it out from the library. Uh, it's really a terrific book. Um, and uh, I really, Tom, I really appreciate you coming on today. I really loved our chat and uh, hope you'll join us again. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you, AJ. My pleasure.